First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Good morning again, church, and welcome to our iCampus as well that is joining us for this service. And if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13. It is so good to be back uh, with you today. Many of you know last week I was out, and uh, that is because our little three-year-old son, Zeke, decided to bring us home a little gift uh, in the form of a stomach bug that swept through uh, our whole household. But I appreciate so much Brother Larry jumping in, preaching on very short notice last week and giving a wonderful message on grace. Uh, but yeah, this time last week I wasn't feeling so great, but feeling much better today. Glad to be here to be able to kick off this new series in the book of Acts called Life on Mission. And we've been studying the book of Acts uh, verse by verse as a church actually for quite some time. Last year we made it all the way to the end of Acts chapter 12. Uh, Then we took a break for Christmas, took a break for our rhythm series that we started 2021 with. But today uh, we're picking up right where we left off in Acts chapter 13. And this is a good place to uh, pick back up the story of Acts because Acts chapter 13 really is the major turning point uh, in the entire book of Acts. Up until this point, the story has mainly focused on the apostle Peter and the other disciples and their ministry in Jerusalem and the immediate uh, surrounding areas. But starting in Acts chapter 13, the major character in the rest of the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. Uh, This man whose life was so radically changed back in chapter 9 when he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was transformed. He went from being the greatest terrorist and enemy of the early church to its greatest missionary. And really the rest of the book of Acts is about Paul and his uh, friends and how they took the message of Jesus all over the known world. What we're going to discover along the way this week, and I pray every week in this series, is that it isn't just Paul and his friends who had been given a mission. That we all have a mission. That we're not here on this planet just to live for ourselves. We are not here to live aimlessly and without purpose. No, we are called to a life on mission. Let's start by reading from God's Word together. We're going to read the first dozen verses or so of chapter 13, but we're going to start with actually the very last verse of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 25. The Word of God says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there they sailed to Cyprus. 
When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word today. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit who has given this word to us would apply it to our hearts. Father, may you change us. Father, may we not just hear the word today, but may we live it out as your people in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I said a couple of minutes ago that starting with Acts chapter 13, the, uh, the story of the book of Acts really centers on this man, the Apostle Paul. We're going to come back to him in, in just a few minutes. But before we talk about this man that was sent, first we need to think about the church that sent him. This sending church that we know as the church at Antioch. Uh, we've already read about the church at Antioch back in Acts chapter 11. And when we talked about them last year, I said this very well may be uh, my favorite local church that we read about anywhere in the Bible. Because this really is an amazing church, this church at Antioch. And this was the first church anywhere that was made up of a mixture of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Uh, this church uh, didn't care who somebody was. They didn't care what they looked like or what their background was. They just went out and told everybody about Jesus because they knew that everybody needs Jesus. And so they were an evangelistic church. They were also a very diverse, multicultural church. We'll talk about that more in a minute as we look at the leadership that they have. But they were also a generous, uh, very giving church. In fact, in verse 25, at the end of chapter 12, it says that uh, Paul and Barnabas were coming back from a ministry that they had just completed in Jerusalem. Well, the ministry they had just completed was actually delivering an offering that the church at Antioch had collected because they heard that the believers in the Jerusalem church were suffering due to a famine. And so they pulled their resources, took up an offering, sent that offering at the hand of Paul and Barnabas to be delivered to these other saints in Jerusalem. And so there's just so many uh, things that I love about this church. And if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you already know all of these things about the church at Antioch before you even get to Acts chapter 13. But here in Acts 13, we find out a little bit more. Verse 1 introduces us to the five main leaders of this church. Look at it with me. It says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Luke says that these leaders were prophets and teachers. He doesn't specify which ones were prophets or which ones were teachers. And in reality, I don't think he's really trying to draw a hard and fast distinction between those categories. In fact, the Apostle Paul was really both a prophet and a teacher in the ministry that God gave him. And, and we're more familiar with the role of a teacher, of course, but the role of a prophet, perhaps not as much. And that's because it was a role that was limited to the very beginning of the church. These men, these prophets, uh, not only spoke in an authoritative way the word of God, but also at times they had a God-given ability to be able to prophetically speak about future events. Paul would later write in his letter to the Ephesians that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Today, the Bible teaches that the role of the prophet has been replaced by the role of the pastor-teacher in the local church. But nonetheless, at this time, these five men, this mixture of prophets and teachers, were the leaders of this church at Antioch. Now, who were these, these guys? Well, they were quite an eclectic bunch, actually. The first name on the list is Barnabas. Uh, we've read about Barnabas all the way back to the early chapters of Acts. Barnabas was a, a man who was a giving man. He was a man who was an encourager. That's what his nickname, Barnabas, means, the son of encouragement. And so he was just a breath of fresh air everywhere that he went. He's the first name on the list. And the last name on the list is Saul, that we know as Paul. We know a lot about those two guys who are the bookends of the list. We don't know very much about the three names that are in the middle. In fact, we know nothing about them other than what is written here. Uh, we meet a man here named Simeon, who is also called Niger. Now, the word Niger means black and most likely indicates that this was a dark-skinned man, a man of African descent who was a leader in this church. Then there's this Lucius of Cyrene. Some people have tried to say that Lucius uh, also uh, represents Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts. I don't believe that that is the case. I believe this is a different man who is also of African descent, who is from Libya on the north coast of Africa. And then there's this man, Menean. It says that he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now that's Herod Antipas, the same Herod who had John the Baptist executed, the same Herod that Jesus stood trial in front of before he was crucified on the cross. And this is really amazing to me that here is this man, Menean, who grew up as either a foster brother or a very close companion. He grew up in the same royal court as Herod Antipas, and one of them went on to become a murderous tyrant. And by the grace of God, one of them went on to become a follower of Christ and one of the five leaders of this church at Antioch. And so that's them, the Antioch Five And again, what an eclectic, interesting mix of people they were. And yet they look just like the cosmopolitan city of Antioch that this church, uh, where this church was located. I believe even this church's leadership was a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel to save anyone. It doesn't matter what our skin color is. It doesn't matter what our background is because we all need the Lord Jesus. And when we come to know him, we can all become a part of the same 
local church family. We can lock arms together. We can serve together. We can worship together. We can lead together. We can go on mission together. And and that kind of unity and that kind of oneness is made possible by the cross of Christ. And it's what our divided world and our divided nation today so desperately needs to see in the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says these five leaders probably are probably the rest of the church as well, where they're fasting and praying together. Look at what it says there in verse 2. It says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. I, I love that phrase that they ministered to the Lord. A lot of times we talk about ministering for the Lord. Sometimes we just want to get out there and do something for God. But the reality is, before we can minister for the Lord, we need to minister to the Lord. And we minister to the Lord when we fast and we pray and we read his word and we seek his face. And so friend, right now, how is your ministry going? Your ministry to the Lord. When is the last time you fasted in order that you might earnestly pray and seek the Lord about some matter? When is the last time you earnestly prayed about anything at all, about your your own life, your spiritual condition, your spouse, your children, the church family? When is the last time you sought the Lord in that kind of an earnest way? Notice that that's what they were doing. It's while they were doing that, it's while they were fasting and praying that God spoke to them and called out Saul and Barnabas and sent them away on a mission trip that quite literally ended up changing the world. So this this fast This time of prayer, this prayer meeting that this one church had literally changed the course of the world because it's out of this time of fasting and out of this time of prayer that God called this man Paul, the greatest missionary who has ever lived, to be sent out on the first mission trip that he ever went on. Again, in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said to them, presumably through one of the prophets who was there, to separate now to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God was saying, set them apart, set them to the side, release them from the work that they're doing now in your local church and release them to the work that I have for them to do someplace else. And church, I hope you hear this, that it isn't just Paul and Barnabas who have been set apart by God for a mission. You were set apart by God for a mission the day that you were saved. That he has a mission for you. That he has a mission that is uniquely suited for you. It's what he has saved you and sent you to do. And so if, if we want our church, if we want First Baptist Melbourne to be a sending church like the church at Antioch was, and the first thing that we need to grab hold of is this, that in a sending church, we all live sent. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by live sent? Well, I mean that we all understand that if we have been saved by Christ, then our lives are not our own to live however we wish, that we have been saved in order to live for him in everything that we do. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 20. He said to them again, peace to you as the father has sent me, even so I send you you. Now, what has he sent us to do? Some people think, 
well, you know, I, I couldn't have been sent unless God's going to send me, you know, to live in a tent in the Congo or something like that. I mean, I haven't been sent to that, then I haven't been sent to anything, but, but that's not actually the case. God doesn't send every single Christian overseas, but he does send every single Christian. We're all sent. And you say, well, where have I been sent then? Well, if you're, if you're married today, then at least one of the places you've been sent is to your spouse. You've been sent to love them and to serve them and to show Christ to them. If you have kids or grandkids, then that's another place you've been sent. You've been sent to them to raise them with the knowledge of the truth that they might know and follow Christ in their life. If you work outside of the home, then you've been sent there. You've been sent there to do your work with excellence and to do it for the glory of God, to do your work as unto the Lord and not to men, like we talked about a few weeks ago. You've been sent to your co-workers and to your neighbors and to your friends to be the light of Jesus, a light of Jesus that they might not see anywhere else unless they see it in you and in your life. You've been sent to all of those places. Again, we need to live sent because we have been sent. Whether we've been sent to the other side of the world as a cross-cultural missionary or whether we've been sent to live right here in Melbourne, Florida in our everyday life, we've all been sent. And that's part of what it means to be a sending church is that we realize that. We all live sent. But another part of what it means to be a sending church is that when God does place his hand on someone in our church family and calls them to go somewhere else for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom, that we don't try to hold on to them, but we're willing to let them go. To be a sending church means we're willing to send away our very best. Certainly that's what the church at Antioch was being asked to do. They were being commanded by God to send away their very best, Barnabas and Saul, to let them go to do something else for the sake of the kingdom. And I know as, as, as we read that, you know, we just kind of read right over that. And we think, well, of course the apostle Paul had to go, right? He's, he's a missionary and he needed to get going. He needed to, to go out on his first missionary trip. And it's easy for us to read that and, and to think that. But imagine if you were a part of the church at Antioch 2,000 years ago. And imagine if the Apostle Paul was one of your five pastors. Imagine if you had that blessing, right? Every week, the Apostle Paul was the one teaching you, the one discipling you, the one who was right there as one of your five pastors ministering to you. And then God put his hand on him and said, nope, you can't have him anymore. I'm taking them someplace else. That would have been hard. I was talking with a pastor friend a while back who had just let his church know that God had called him to another place of, of ministry. Uh, and I asked him, well, how did it go, you know, on that Sunday when you, when you let uh, your church know? And uh, he, he replied and he said, well, nobody applauded. So that was... <laughs> said, yep, that, that's good. That's always good. But, but sometimes you're not sure, right? Maybe people might applaud to see you go. I'm pretty sure there was no applause to see the Apostle Paul go. I'm pretty sure this church at Antioch would have loved to have had Paul and Barnabas stay, and yet they did not hold them back. They sent them off. They laid hands on them. They prayed for them. They commissioned them, and they sent them out to do what God had called them to do. And here's the thing, church, this is not hypothetical for us. 
This is so relevant for where we are as a church because this is coming for us in less than a year. We believe, as we shared a couple of weeks ago, that God has called us to pursue together this goal of planting one church a year for the next 10 years. Two weeks ago, we presented to you our, uh, the man we believe is our next church planter, Cody Chester, and his wife, Kristen. At the end of this year, we pray we'll be able to send this couple out and their family out along with 30 or 40 or 50 or more people from our church who would be willing to go and be a part of the core team to help get this new work started. And maybe you hear that and you're thinking, you know what, I have just the guy in mind that I could nominate to go. There's this guy in my life group that I really, it's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I I nominate him. I want to send him. I know none of y'all would actually say that, but here's the reality. That guy isn't going to go. Who's going to go is going to be the best among us. It's going to be mature disciples who are willing to leave what is comfortable, who are willing to leave what they know and love, to step out and be a part of something that is new and difficult and hard. The people who are going to go are going to be your life group leaders. They're going to be people who are crushing it right now in our student ministry or in our kids' ministry, people who are serving. Those are the ones that are going to go. Maybe one day it'll even be one of our pastors who will come up to me and will say, Pastor Scott, I feel like God has called me to step out and be a part of this new work in Malabar or in Vieira or in Boston or in New York, and I need to go. I told Cody and Kristen that as they're building their core team this this year to get ready for this church plan, I told them that they have full permission to talk to anybody in the church that they want to about going with them to be a part of this new church plan, including every staff member that we have. I did say I just don't want you to take my wife. I do want her to, if I could just (laughs) kind of just keep her here. But anybody else, you you can take. You know, it's one thing when you hear 30, 40, 50 people are going to go. It's another thing when those 40 or 50 people start to get names, like Paul and Barnabas. When one of them is your life group leader, your Sunday school teacher, when one of them is your friend. That's why the title of this message is Church Planning Hurts, because there will be some sacrifices along the way. That, that's one of the reasons why church planning can't just be something that some people in our church do. It has to be something our whole church will embrace or will never be able to do it. And friend, maybe it's you that God is starting to put his hand upon and tap you on the shoulder and he's beginning to call you out to be a part of a new work. You know, actually in just about an hour, a little less than an hour, there's a, a meeting at 1130 about our Launchpad ministry. Going to that meeting is not a, not a commitment on your part, but maybe that's the first step, to go get some information. Just start to pray about what that could look like to be a part of a new work. I know I've emphasized the sacrifice part of it, how hard it can be to let people go, but you know, it's also not just about sacrifice. It's also a tremendous blessing. You know, the church at Antioch, because they were willing to send Paul and Barnabas away, not only on this missionary journey, but on their other missionary journeys, because they were willing to send them away, they got to be a part of everything that then happened on every one of those mission trips. 
Every person that came to know Christ, every church that was planted, the church at Antioch was a part of all of that. Because of their willingness to not hoard, because of their willingness to send their very best away, and how glorious it's going to be, church, when one day, I believe, we'll see more people being baptized every year in the churches that we have planted than are being baptized here at First Baptist Melbourne. And I believe that, will, that day will come not too far in the future if we're willing to be a church that doesn't hoard, a church that is willing to send. We've talked about this sending church, but let's take the time we have left and think about the man that they sent, this sent man that we know as the Apostle Paul. And we need to remember that as we read about Paul here, this, this is Paul before the Paul that wrote all of the letters that we have in the New Testament. Now, this is Paul before he's taken all of these mission trips that we know him for. This is Paul going out, and, and what we're reading here in verses 4 through 13, or 4 through 12, this is Paul on the very first leg of the very first missionary journey that Paul went on. In verses 4 and 5, it says that he and Barnabas, along with John Mark, who was there for just a short time, we'll talk more about John Mark uh, next week, But they went a few miles from Antioch to the port city of Seleucia, and there they got on a boat and sailed 130 miles to the island of Cyprus. You can see it here on this map. And so they left Seleucia there, very near Antioch, sailed down to Cyprus. Uh, Cyprus was considered like the Hawaii of the ancient world. This wasn't a bad, how many of y'all want to go on a mission trip to Hawaii, right? Not a bad first place to go, but it got harder from there for sure. They landed on the port city of Salamis, on the eastern side of Cyprus and begin to make their way all the way across the island to that city of Paphos that we'll read about in a minute. Now, we don't know much about what happened in the city of Salamis other than Paul preached in the Jewish synagogues, and that was the pattern that he took everywhere that he went. He always started there to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But Luke doesn't tell us if people responded or how many people responded, his, his attention lies on the other side of the island in that city of Paphos because there's a man who lived there who was the proconsul, the Roman governor over the island of Cyprus. And before it's all said and done, he's going to come to faith in Jesus. And so as we look at this very first leg of Paul's very first mission trip, here's a few things I want us to learn this morning about living sent. First off, when we live sent, we'll find out that some people want to hear. Some people want to hear. I know sometimes we don't think that. (laughs) Sometimes we we think, you know, nobody wants to hear me talk about Jesus. That's just going to make people uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about spiritual things. None of my friends are interested in discussing any of that. And so it's probably best if, if I just keep quiet. But when we're faithful to share with the opportunities that God gives us, listen, some people (coughs) will want to hear because God is at work in their hearts and God is preceding you and he's working to draw them to himself. That was the situation here. If you look at verse 7 with me, it says, Who is with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So here is this man who is the Roman governor of the whole island. He's the man in charge. His name is Sergius Paulus. That's a pretty impressive name. 
And this is a pretty impressive guy. It says that he was an intelligent man. Uh, He had heard something of the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, and he wanted to hear more. And you can tell he was an intelligent man because he's already making intelligent decisions, like asking to hear more of the Word of God. That's a smart choice. That's actually the same choice you made today, isn't it? When you put yourself in an environment where the Word of God is open before you, that is always an intelligent decision. Well, that's what Sergius Paulus does. And I love that he calls for them. He wants to hear more. Now, not everybody on the island did that, but he did. Because God was already working in his heart and in his life. And friend, be encouraged. Whenever you share, God is always working ahead of you as well. There will be some like Sergius Paulus, wherever you go, who will want to hear. But there will also be some who will try to hinder And we see that in this story as well. Look in verse 6, we're introduced to another man on the island of Cyprus who uh, apparently was connected in some way to Sergius Paulus. He was uh, maybe an attendant or a counselor or a court magician of some kind. And this guy has two names in our text. His first name is Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus literally means the son of Jesus. Now, bear in mind that the name Jesus is related to the Old Testament name Joshua. It's a very common name in this day and age. And so uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that he had any relation to the Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He was just a son of a man by that same name. What I find interesting, though, is that in English, that name Bar-Jesus is a pretty good description of what this guy was all about. He was about barring people from coming to faith in Jesus. Right? That's what he does in this story. He's trying to keep particularly the governor of the island from coming to faith. Look in verse 8. It says, but Elimus, that's his other name. It comes from a word for magic. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, we're not told what his motivation was for doing that. Maybe he was afraid that uh, he might lose the profitable little sorcery business that he had up and running if something were to change with the governor and he didn't find himself in his good graces anymore. I think you also cannot discount the spiritual element of what is going on here. This was a man who was involved in demonic activity. And of course, we know that there is an enemy who opposes the truth of God's word, who opposed the message about Jesus that Paul was bringing, who did not want to see the Roman governor turn to faith. But at the end of the day, whatever his motivations were, it really didn't matter because God was moving and God was taking over this island and God is far too powerful for this little magic boy to stop him. And we do need to take to heart, though, that when we live on mission, when we live sent, it won't always be smooth sailing. There will be times, just like happened here for Paul, where you're trying to share with somebody, and maybe this has happened to you. You've tried to share with somebody, but there's somebody else in that person's life. Maybe a family member, maybe a friend, somebody in their circle who is adamantly opposed to the things of God. And every time you're sharing, they're coming in right behind you to kind of poo-poo whatever you're saying, to, to, to try to pour water on the spiritual fire of what God is doing in that person's life and in that person's heart. This can happen. In fact, it does happen all the time. But it's encouraging to remember that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. 
that God is not threatened by that person who is standing in the way of faith. In fact, God can change that person's heart too. Or God could just set them to the side like he does here. Verse 9, it starts out and says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul. I know I've been bouncing back and forth between those two names for the same person today. Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Roman name. But circle this verse right here, Acts 13.9, because this is the turning point in the book of Acts. And from this point on, Luke is going to refer to him by this name, Paul. After this, the only time that he uses the name Saul is when he's going back and telling the story of how he came to faith in Christ. And Paul, of course, is how we know this individual best. Verse 9, it says, Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, he gave him the look. And I'm pretty sure every husband in this room has gotten the look at some time or other in your life. Uh, Every child in this room has probably gotten that look from your mom or your dad at some point too. You knew you were about to be put back in your place. But this was a Holy Spirit-inspired look. And the word that he was about to give was a word from God. A word of correction. A word of rebuke for a person who is standing in the way of God. And notice that Paul does not sugarcoat anything here. I mean, he goes full gospel nuclear beatdown on this guy in verse 10. He says, oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. When's the last time you called somebody a son of the devil? You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? His name might have meant son of Jesus, but he was the farthest thing from that. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says you're really a son of the devil. You're a liar just like your father is. And you're you're standing in the way of everything that is right. There's something wrong, you're about it. If there's something right, you oppose it. He says, when will you stop uh, perverting? The word means to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. So the way of the Lord is a straight highway that leads to the cross and you're trying to make it crooked. You're trying to make it difficult for somebody to walk it. You're trying to make it hard for somebody to get there to where they need to go, where they can find grace and forgiveness and and life. And I don't know, maybe as you hear this description of what Elimus was doing on that island, God is saying to your spirit that that's what you're doing right now in someone else's life. Maybe you're here and And you would just say, you know, not only am I not surrendering my life to Christ, but I know I'm just like this guy. I'm actually trying to keep somebody else from surrendering their life to Christ too. And if that's the case, God would say the same thing to you that he said to Elimus 2,000 years ago. He would say to you, when will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? When will you stop being an enemy of all that is right? When will you humble yourself and believe in the gospel? In verse 11, Paul says, And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. So he says the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now, normally when we say that, we mean something good by that, right? We'll say, you know, the hand of the Lord is really on that young man or on that young woman. But the hand of the Lord can be on a person to bless them or to show favor to them. But the hand of the Lord can also be on a person to judge them or to discipline them. And that's the situation here. And notice this blindness is not a 
permanent blindness. It's a temporary blindness. Remember, Paul knows something about that by personal experience. He was temporarily blind for a few days after he met the risen Lord as well. And so in addition to this being a judgment upon this sorcerer, perhaps it was also intended to be an opportunity for him to repent, to believe Christ. Text says that after Paul spoke those words, a dark mist fell on this man, this magician went around looking for someone to lead him by the hand. How humbling that must have been for this man who was used to probably having crowds of people flock to see his sorcery, and now he's stumbling about grabbing a hold of trees so he doesn't fall off the cliff. Again, while some will want to hear, some will try to hinder, but God is greater than any other. There is no principality, there is no power of darkness that is a rival to him. Satan is at work all the time, we know that. Satan is at work trying to make people feel like they don't have any hope, like they have no way out. Satan is at work trying to destroy marriages and families, even inside the church. He's at work through all kinds of addictions, all kinds of chains that he uses to hold people down, to keep people trapped. But our God is stronger. He's a chain breaker, as the song goes. While some want to hear and some will try to hinder, whenever and wherever Christ is preached, there will be some who will receive a brand new heart. That's what happened on the island of Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Look at verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Yes, he was amazed by the sign of the blindness that came upon his court magician, but the text really doesn't emphasize the sign that he saw. It emphasizes the word that he heard. And he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished by grace. He was astonished by what he heard about Jesus, how he died for his sin, how he rose again, how if he, the Roman governor of that island, would humble himself and come before God broken, that he could be forgiven and redeemed and become a part of the family of God. And it says he believed and he was saved. Again, church, when we share about Jesus, not everyone will believe. Not everyone will be saved, but some will. And I pray that in a couple of weeks in Vieira at City Fest, there will be some that we invite, some that we bring, who will believe just like Sergius Paulus did and be saved. And I hope you'll pray with me about that. We've talked about the sending church in this story, this church at Antioch, how we want to be a church like that here at First Baptist of Melbourne. We've talked about this man that was sent and how we've all been sent. We all need to live sent. But very quickly as we wrap up this morning, we need to remember the reason we can all live sent, the reason why we can be a church that sins is because our sending God sent his son to us. We need to remember our sending God and the man he sent, the man Jesus When you read through the accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but especially in, in the fourth gospel in John, it's very clear that Jesus understood that he was sent by the Father. 
that he was the sent one from the Father who was here on a mission from the Father to save lost people like you and me. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 5. He said, I can do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The will of the Father who sent Jesus, his son, was for him to come and live a perfect life that we have not been able to live. The will of the Father was for Jesus to go to the cross and to pay for your sin and my sin. The will of the Father was for him to be raised from the dead on the third day. The will of the Father is for him to rule and reign over all things forever and ever. That's the mission that he was sent to accomplish. If you want to know how to become a follower of Jesus... I can't think of any place where it's been put more simply than the way Jesus put it in John chapter 6. When he said these words, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. We don't get saved because we do any works of our own that are good enough, that God then saves us because of what we have accomplished. No, Jesus said the only work that you need to do is the work of believing in Jesus that God has sent. And when you do that, when you believe in him and you surrender your life to him, you become a part of the family of God. I know we've talked about being sent and living sent this morning, but here is the truth. The first step towards living sent is believing in the one that God has sent. And I pray, friend, that you've already done that. But if you haven't, I pray that you will today. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, whom you have sent. We thank you for the life on mission that he lived. That he fulfilled the work that you gave him to do. All the way to the cross all the way to the empty tomb. Thank you that because of his work, because of his death that paid for our sins, because of his resurrection, that God, we can have new life, that we can be forgiven, we can be saved, we can be redeemed, no matter how broken we find ourselves right now, you still love us. You want to reclaim us for your purpose. Father, I pray for anyone here that needs today to believe in the one you sent, that they would. Father, I pray for every child of God in this place, every believer that is called by your name, who has already at some point in the past put their faith in your son Jesus. I pray, God, that like we talked about today, you would help us to live sent. Father, we know our life is not our own. It's been bought with a price. God, every day as we, as we go, whether it's to the other side of the world, whether it's to be a part of a new church, Father, whether it's to just go to work and go to school and love our family well, God, help us to live our mission. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.